0: chapter three part two of haunted london this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by julie barclay haunted london by walter thornbury chapter three part two the story runs thus when the countess catherine was dying she sent to the queen to tell her that she had a secret to reveal without disclosing which she could not die in peace the queen came and the countess then told her that when essex was in the tower under sentence of death he one morning threw a ring from his window to a boy passing underneath hiring him to carry it to his friend lady scrope the countess's sister and beg of her to present it in his name to the queen who had promised to protect him whenever he sent her that keepsake and who was then waiting for some such sign of his submission the boy not clearly understanding the message brought the ring to the countess who showed it to her husband and he insisted on her keeping it the countess having made this disclosure begged her majesty's forgiveness but the queen answered god may forgive you but i never can and burst from the room in a paroxysm of rage and grief from that time elizabeth became perturbed in mind and refused to eat or sleep and died a fortnight after the countess now this is absurd the queen never repented the death of that wrong-headed traitor and really died of a long-standing illness which had well-defined symptoms at arundel house lodged that grave wise minister of henry the fourth of france the duc de soli then only the marquis de rosny he describes the house with complacency as fine and commodious and having a great number of apartments on the same floor it was really a mean and low building but commanding a fine prospect of the river and westminster so fine indeed that holler took a view of london from the roof the first night of his arrival solis slept at the french ambassador's house in butcher row adjoining a poor house with low rooms a well staircase lit by a skylight and small casements in the time of james i in whose reign the earldom was restored to thomas howard arundel house became a treasury of art the travelled earl's collection comprised thirty-seven statues one hundred and twenty-eight busts and two hundred and fifty inscribed marbles exclusive of sarcophagi altars medals gems and fragments some of his noblest relics however he was not allowed to remove from rome of this proud and princely amateur of art lord clarendon speaks with too obvious prejudice he describes him as living in a world of his own surrounded by strangers and though illiterate willing to be thought a scholar because he was a collector of works of art yet the historian admits that he had an air of gravity and greatness in his face and bearing he affected an ancient and grave dress but clarendon asserts that this was all outside and that his real disposition was one of levity as he was fond of childish and despicable amusements van somers portraits of the earl and countess contain views of the statue and picture galleries this illustrious nobleman whom the excellent evelyn calls my noble friend died in sixteen forty six at the restoration his house and marbles were restored to his grandson mr henry howard the antiquities were then lying scattered about arundel gardens and were neglected and corroding blanching with rain and green with damp much to the horror of evelyn and other antiquaries who regarded their fate with alarm and pity the old earl of arundel whom clarendon disliked had been a collector of art in a magnificent and princely way he dispatched artist agents to italy and even to asia minor to buy pictures drawings statues votive slabs and gems william petty collected sculpture for him at paros and delos but the collections were lost off samos in a storm he collected Holbein's and Albert Durer's drawings, and discovered the genius of Inigo Jones, and brought Holler from Prague. He left England just before the Troubles, having received many affronts from Charles's ministers, who had neglected to restore his ancient titles, went to Padua, and there died. The marbles Mr. Evelyn induced Mr. Howard, in 1667, to send to the University of Oxford. The statues were also given to Oxford by a later descendant, and the earl's library originally part of that of the king of hungary mr evelyn persuaded the duke of norfolk to bestow on the royal society the old earl was i suspect a proud soured and rather arrogant formal person in a certain dispute about a rectory he once said to king charles i sir this rectory was an appendant and a manure of mine until my grandfather unfortunately lost both his life and seven lordships for the love he bore to your grandmother after the great fire of london mr howard lent the royal society rooms in his house in sixteen seventy eight the palace was taken down and the present arundel surrey howard and norfolk streets were erected in its stead the few marbles that remained were removed to tart hall westminster and to cooper's gardens across the river tart hall was the residence of the countess of arundel cooper's gardens belonged to a gardener of the earl of arundel the duke of norfolk originally intended to build a more magnificent house on the old site and even obtained an act of parliament for the purpose but fashion was already setting westward and the design was abandoned in arundel street lived rymer the historical antiquary who died here in seventeen fifteen john anstice the garter king-at-arms resided here in seventeen fifteen to sixteen also mrs porter the actress over against the blue ball gay in his delightful trivia sketches the long strand and pauses to mourn over the glories of arundel house his walk is from the temple's silent walls and he stays to look down at the site of the earl's mansion that narrow street which steep descends, whose building to the shining shore extends. Here Arundel's famed structure reared its frame, the street alone retains an empty name. Where Titian's glowing paint the canvas warmed, and Raphael's fair design with judgment charmed, now hangs the bellman's song, and pasted here the colored prince of Overton appear. Where statues breathed the work of Phidias's hands, A wooden pump or lonely watch-house stands. There Essex's stately pile adorned the shore, There Cecil's, Bedford's, Villiers', now no more. In the strand between Arundel and Norfolk streets, In the year 1698, lived Sir Thomas Lyttelton, Speaker of the House of Commons, and father of Pope's friend, And the author of The History of Henry II, a ponderous and pompous work next door to him lived the father of bishop burnet a remarkable person for he was a poor but honest lawyer born at edinburgh in sixteen forty three a bookseller of the same name a collateral descendant of the bishop whom swift hated so cordially afterwards occupied the house at the southwest corner of norfolk street near the river in his wild days lodged the quaker Penn, son of cromwell's stout bristol admiral he had been twice beaten and turned out of doors by his father for his fondness for nonconformist society and prayer-meetings and for refusing to stand uncovered in the presence of charles the second or of the duke of york of whom later he became the suspected favorite we do not generally associate the grave and fanatic pen with a gay and licentious court nor do we portray him to ourselves as slinking away from hawk-eyed bailiffs and yet the venerated founder of repudiating pennsylvania shows of this house when he was sued for debts, as being convenient for slipping unobserved into a boat. In the eastern entrance he had a peephole through which he could reconnoitre any suspicious visitor. On one occasion a dun, having sent in his name and waited an unconscionable time, knocked again. "'Will not thy master see me?' he said to the servant. The knave was at least candid, for he replied, "'Friend, he has seen thee and he does not like thee. In Norfolk Street, in Penn's old house, afterwards resided for thirty years that truly good man, Dr. Richard Brocklesby, who in early life, during the Seven Years' War, had practised as an army surgeon. He was a friend of Burke and Dr. Johnson. To the former he left, or rather gave, a thousand pounds, and to the latter he offered an annuity of a hundred pounds a year to enable him to travel for his health and also apartments in his own house for the sake of medical advice, which Johnson affectionately and gratefully declined. The doctor was one of the most generous and amiable of men. He attended the poor for nothing, and had many pensioners. He died the day after returning from a visit to Burke at Beaconsfield. He had been warned against the fatigue of this journey, but had replied with true Christian philosophy, My good friend, where's the difference whether I die at a friend's house at an inn or in a post-chaise. I hope I am prepared for such an event, and perhaps it would be as well to elude the anticipation of it. Dr. Brocklesby was ridiculed by Foote, but Foote attacked a virtue quite as often as vice. He was the physician who had attended Lord Chatham when he was struck down by illness in the House of Lords a short time before his death. In January 1698 Peter the Great arrived from Holland and went straight to a house prepared for him in Norfolk Street, near the waterside. On the following day he was visited by King William and the principal nobility. Incommoded here by visitors, the Tsar removed to Admiral Wenbow's house at Deptford, where he could live more retired. This Deptford house was Say's Place, afterwards the victualling office, and had once belonged to the celebrated John Evelyn. The honest Shippen of Pope, William Shippen, M.P., lived also in Norfolk Street, a brave, honest man, in an age when nearly every politician had his price. It was of him Sir Robert Walpole remarked, that he would not say who was corrupted, but he would say who was not corruptible, and that was Shippen. Mortimer, a rough, picturesque painter, who was called the English Salvatore Rosa, and imitated that unsatisfactory artist in a coarse, sketchy kind of way, dwelt in this street— at number twenty-one lived albany wallace a friend and executor of garrick in this street also addison makes that delightful old country gentleman sir roger de coverley put up before he goes to soho square at number eight in seventeen ninety five lived samuel ireland the father of the celebrated literary impostor and here were shown to george chalmers john kemble and other shakespearean scholars the forged plays which the public ultimately scented out as ridiculous in seventeen ninety six mr w h ireland published a full confession of his forgeries fully exonerating his father from all connivance in his foolish fraud claiming forgiveness for a boyish deception begun without evil intention and without any thought of danger i should never have gone so far he says but that the world praised the papers too much and thereby flattered my vanity after the failure of vortigern the father mr s ireland still credulous had written a pamphlet accusing malone his son's chief assailant of mean malice and unbearable arrogance the true story of the forgery is this w h ireland then only eighteen was articled to a solicitor in new inn he practised Elizabethan handwriting for the sake of deceiving credulous antiquaries. A forged deed, exciting the admiration of his father, who was a collector of old tracts and a worshipper of Shakespeare, led him to continue his deceptions and to pretend to have discovered a hoard of Shakespearean manuscripts. A fellow clerk, one Talbot, afterwards an actor, discovering the forgeries, Ireland made him an accomplice. They then produced a profession of faith, signed by Shakespeare which dr parr and dr wharton brother of the poet declared contained finer things than all the church service this foolish praise set the secretive lawyer's clerk on writing original verse a poem to anne hathaway and the play of vortigern the most recklessly impudent of all his impostures boswell was the first to propose a certificate to be signed by all believers in the productions dr parr thinking boswell's writing too feeble drew up another which was signed by twenty-one noblemen, authors, and celebrated literary characters. Boswell, characteristically enough, previous to signing his name, fell on his knees, and in a tone of enthusiasm and exultation thanked God that he had lived to witness this discovery, and exclaimed that he could now die in peace. Lords Kinnaird, Somerset, and Lauderdale were the noblemen. There were also present Bindley, Volpe, Pinkerton, Pye the poet laureate, matthew wyatt and the present author's grandfather the rev nathaniel thornbury an intimate friend of jenner and of dr johnson who had at this time been twelve years dead the elder ireland in his pamphlet alludes to the solemn and awful manner in which before crowds of eminent characters his son attested the genuineness of his forgeries i could not said the honest fellow suffer myself to cherish the slightest suspicion of his veracity singularly enough mr albany wallace a solicitor i believe of norfolk street who had given to garrick a mortgage deed bearing shakespeare's signature became the most ardent believer in the unprincipled young clerk's deceptions the terms agreed upon for ireland's forgery of vortigern was three hundred pounds down in a division of the receipts deducting charges for sixty nights the play however lived only one night for which the irelands received their half one hundred and three pounds the commentators Malone and Stevens remained sceptical, and Kemble was suspicious and cold in the cause, though he was to be the hero. But the gulls and quidnuncs were numerous enough to cram the house, and that most commonplace of poets, Sir James Bland Burgess, wrote the prologue. The final damnation of the play was secured by a rhapsody of Vortigern's, a patchwork thing from Richard II and Henry IV, the fatal line, and when the solemn mockery is o'er convulsed the house. Mr. W. H. Ireland in later life was editor of the York Herald and died in 1835. Another eminent historical antiquary, Dr. Birch, lived in Norfolk Street. The son of a Quaker tradesman at Clerkenwell, he became a London clergyman and an historian, famous for his Sunday evening's Conversaciones, and was killed by a fall from his horse in 1766 he seems to have been a most pleasant, generous, and honest man. He edited Bacon's letters and speeches, and Thurlow's state papers, etc. His chief work was his memoirs of the reign of Queen Elizabeth. He left books, manuscripts, and money to the British Museum, for which let all scholars bless the good man's memory. He appears to have been a student of boundless industry, as from the Lambeth Library alone he transcribed in his own hand sixteen quarto volumes. He was rector of St. Margaret Patton's in Fenchurch Street. Dr. Birch must have been a kind husband, for his wife on her deathbed wrote him the following tender letter. This day I return to you, my dearest life, my sincere hearty thanks for every favor bestowed upon your most faithful and obedient wife, Hannah Birch. We leave it to the watchful cynic to remark that the doctor had been married only one year. It was of this worthy bookworm that Johnson said, yes sir he is brisk in conversation but when he takes up the pen it benumbs him like a torpedo stripe describes surrey street as replenished with good buildings especially that of Nevison fox esq toward the strand which is a fine large and curious house of his own building and the two houses that front the thames that on the east side being the honourable charles howards brother to the duke of norfolk both of these houses had pleasant, though small gardens, towards the Thames. In seventeen thirty six died here George Sale, the useful translator of the Mohammedan Bible, the Koran, that strange compound of pure prayers and impure plagiarisms from the laws of Moses. Sale had published his Koran in seventeen thirty four, and in the year of his death he joined Paul Whitehead, Dr Birch, and Mr Strutt in founding a society for the encouragement of learning. He spent many years in writing for the Universal History, in which Bale's ten folio volumes were included. Edward Pierce, a sculptor, son of a painter of altarpieces and church ceilings, and a pupil of Van Dyke, lived at the corner of Surrey Street, and was buried in the Savoy. He helped Sir Christopher Wren to build St. Clement's Church, and carved the four guardian dragons on the Monument of London, the statue of Sir William Walworth at the Fishmonger's Hall is from his hand, and so is the bust of Thomas Evans in the Hall of the Painters and Stainers. He executed also busts of Cromwell, Wren, and Milton. The charming actress, Mrs. Bracegirdle, lived in Howard Street. She was the belle and toast of London. Every young man of mode was, or pretended to be, in love with her, and the wits wrote verses upon her beauty in imitation of Sedley and Waller. Congreve tells us that it was the fashion to avow a tenderness for her. Rowe, in imitation of an ode to Horace, urges the Earl of Scarsdale to marry her, though he had a wife living, and set the town at defiance. Among this crowd of admirers was a Captain Hill, a half-cracked man about town, a drunken, profligate bully of low character, and a friend of the infamous duelist, Lord Mohan one of mrs bracegirdle's favorite parts was statira her lover alexander being her friend and neighbor the eminent actor mountfort cibber describes him in this character as great tender persistent despairing transported amiable hill that dark-souled fellow in the pit as leigh hunt calls him mistook the frantic extravagance of stage passion for real love and in a fit of mad jealousy swore to be revenged on mountfort and to carry off the lady by force. Lord Mohun, always ready for any desperate mischief, agreed to help him in his design. On the night appointed, the friends dined together, and having changed clothes, went to Drury Lane Theatre at six o'clock, but as Mrs. Bracegirdle did not act that night, they next took a coach and drove to her lodgings in Howard Street. They then, finding that she had gone to supper with a Mr. Page in Prince's Street, Drury Lane, went to his house, and waited till she came out. She appeared at last at the door with her mother and brother, Mr. Page, lighting them out. Hill immediately seized her and endeavored, with the aid of some hired ruffians, to drag her into the coach, where Lord Mohan sat with a loaded pistol in each hand. But her brother and Mr. Page rushed to the rescue, and an angry crowd gathering, Hill was forced to let go his hold and decamp. Mrs. Bracegirdle and her escort then proceeded to her lodgings in Howard Street, followed by Captain Hill and Lord Mohan on foot. On knocking at the door, as it was said to beg Mrs. Bracegirdle's pardon, they were refused admittance. Upon which they sent for a bottle of wine to a neighbouring tavern, which they drank in the street, and then began to patrol up and down with swords drawn, declaring that they were waiting to be revenged on Mountfort the actor. Messengers were instantly dispatched to warn Mountfort, both by Mrs. Bracegirdle's landlady and his own wife, but he could not be found. The watch were also sent for and they begged the two ruffians to depart peaceably. Lord Mohan replied, "'He was a peer of the realm, "'that he had been drinking a bottle of wine, "'but that he was ready to put up his sword "'if they particularly desired it. "'But, as for his friend, he had lost his scabbard.' "'The cautious watch then went away. "'In the meantime, the unlucky Mountfort, "'suspecting no evil, "'passed down the street on his way home heedless of warnings.' On coming up to the swordsman, a female servant heard the following conversation. Lord Mohan embraced Mountfort and said, "'Mr. Mountfort, your humble servant, I am glad to see you.' "'Who is this? Lord Mohan?' said Mountfort. "'Yes, it is. What brings your lordship here at this time of night?' Lord Mohan replied, "'I suppose you were sent for, Mr. Mountfort.' "'No, indeed, I came by chance.' "'Have you not heard of the business of Mrs. Bracegirdle?' "'Pray, my lord,' said Hill, breaking in, "'hold your tongue. "'This is not a convenient time to discuss this business.' Hill seemed desirous to go away, and pulled Lord Mohun's sleeve, but Mountfort, taking no notice of Hill, continued to address Lord Mohun, saying he was sorry to see him assisting Captain Hill in such an evil action, and begged him to forbear. Hill instantly gave the actor a box on the ear, and on Mountfort, demanding what that was for, attacked him with sword in hand, and ran him through before he had time to draw his weapon. Mountfort died the next day of the wound, declaring with his last breath that Lord Mohan had offered him no violence. Hill fled from justice, and Lord Mohan was tried for murder, but unfortunately acquitted for want of evidence. That fortunate poet Congreve whom Pope declared to be one of the three most honest hearted and really good men in the Kit Kat Club, lived for some time in Howard Street, where he was a neighbour and frequent guest of Mrs. Bracegirdle. Congreve, on becoming acquainted with the Duchess of Marlborough, removed from Howard Street to a better house in Surrey Street, where he died january nineteenth, seventeen twenty nine. The career of this son of a Yorkshire officer had been one long undisturbed triumph. His first play had been revised by Dryden and praised by Southern. Besides being commissioner of hackney-coach and wine licenses, he also held a place in the pipe office, a post in the custom-house, and a secretaryship in Jamaica. He never quarreled with the wits. Both Addison and Steele admired and praised him, and Voltaire eulogizes his comedies. It was here that Voltaire, while lodging in Maiden Lane, visited the gouty and nearly blind dramatist then infirm and on the verge of life, Mr. Congreve, he says, had one defect, which was his entertaining too mean an idea of his profession, that of a writer, though it was to this he owed his fame and fortune. He spoke of his works as of trifles that were beneath him, and hinted to me in our first conversation that I should visit him upon no other footing than that of a gentleman who led a life of plainness and simplicity. I answered that had he been so unfortunate as to be a mere gentleman i should never have come to see him and i was very much disgusted at so unseasonable a piece of vanity the body of congreve lay in state in the jerusalem chamber and was afterwards interred with great solemnity in henry the seventh's chapel the duke of bridgewater and the earl of godolphin were amongst those who bore the pall the monument was erected by the duchess of marlborough to whom the favoured poet had left ten thousand pounds above his body the ancient pillars rear their marble heads to bear aloft the arched and ponderous roof by its own weight made steadfast and immovable congreve's bequest to the duchess of all his property except one thousand pounds including two hundred pounds to mrs bracegirdle a legacy afterwards cancelled created much scandal the shameless bookseller curl instantly launched forth a life of congreve professing to be written by one charles wilson esq but generally attributed to old mixon the duchess's friends were alarmed and arbuthnot interfered upon being told that some genuine letters and essays were to be published in the work mrs bracegirdle or the duchess cried out with defiant affectation and a dramatic drawl not one single sheet of paper i dare to swear the duchess who raised a monument in the abbey to her brilliant but artificial friend is said to have had a wax image of him made to place on her toilet-table. To this she would talk as to the living Mr. Congreve, with all the freedom of the most polite and unreserved conversation. Strand Lane used formerly to lead to a small landing-pier for wherries called Strand Bridge. In Stowe's time the lane passed under the bridge, down to the landing-place a writer in the spectator describes how he landed here on a summer morning arriving with ten sail of apricot boats consigned to covent garden after having first touched at nine elms for melons in this lane there is a fine roman bath which if indeed roman is the most western relic of roman london the centre of which was on the east side of the royal exchange number one sixty five has long been used as a warehouse for the sale of dr anderson's pills dr patrick anderson was physician to charles i and as early as sixteen forty nine a man named inglis sold these quack pills at the golden unicorn over against the maypole in the strand tom brown says there are at least a score of pretenders to anderson's scotch pills and the lord knows who has the true preparation brown died in seventeen o four sir walter scott used to tell one of his best stories about these pills it dwelt on the passion for them entertained by a certain hypochondriacal lowland laird, bland or rough, old or young. No visitor at his house escaped a dose. Just an little Anderson, and his toady, the doer, used always to swallow a brace. The Turk's Head Coffee House stood on the site of Number One Forty-Two Strand. Doctor Johnson used to sup at this house to encourage the hostess, who was a good civil woman and had not too much business. July 28th, 1763, Boswell mentions supping there with Dr. Johnson, and again on August 3rd in the same year, just before he set out for his wild goose chase in Corsica. Number 132 was the shop of a bookseller named Batho. The first circulating library in London was established here in 1740. Jacob Tonson, Dryden's grinding publisher and bookseller, lived at the Shakespeare's Head over against Catherine Street, now number 141 Strand from about 1712 till he died, in 1735-6. to Tonson seems to have been rough, hard, and penurious. The poet and publisher were perpetually squabbling, and Dryden was especially vexed at his trying to force him to dedicate his translation of Virgil to King William, and when he refused, making the engraver of the frontispiece aggravate the nose of Aeneas until it became a hooked promontory, like that of the Protestant king it was to Tonson's shop at gray's inn however that dryden on being refused money probably sent that terrible triplet to the obdurate bibliopole with the leering looks bull-faced and freckled fair with two left legs and judas colored hair and frowsy pores that taint the ambient air tell the dog said dryden to his messenger that he who wrote those can write more but Tonson was perfectly satisfied with this first shot and surrendered at discretion the irascible poet afterwards accused him of intercepting his letters to his sons at rome and he confessed to bolingbroke on one occasion that he was afraid of thonson's tongue thonson's house since rebuilt was afterwards occupied by andrew miller the publisher and friend of thompson fielding hume and robertson and after his death by thomas Cadell, his apprentice and the friend and publisher of gibbon the historian the seasons tom jones and the histories of hume robertson and gibbon were first published at this house miller was a scotchman and distinguished his shop by the sign of buchanan's head afterwards the badge of messrs blackwood the illustrated london news whose office is near somerset house was started in eighteen forty two by mr herbert ingram originally a humble news vendor at northampton an industrious man who would run five miles with a newspaper to oblige an old customer in the first year, he sold a million copies. In the second, two. And in 1848, three millions. Dr. Mackey, the songwriter, wrote leaders. Mr. Mark Lemon aided him. Mr. Peter Cunningham collected his column of weekly chat. Thomas Miller, the basket-maker poet, was also on his staff. Mr. Ingram obtained a seat in Parliament and was eventually drowned in a steamboat collision on Lake Michigan. End of chapter three, part two. Recording by Julie Barkley.